0: please join me in opening your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 7. As a society and as individuals, we have grown accustomed to conflict. We see conflict in and around the world. Nations being at odds. We see conflict within our own country, politically. We see conflict cultural conflicts that are going on within our country. Sometimes there are conflicts at work. Sometimes there are conflicts in our homes. And there are many times conflicts right within our own lives. We deal on a daily basis with the fact that we face conflict within ourselves. Conflict ongoing. The cartoons used to depict picked this conflict with an angelic character on one shoulder and a demonic character on the other shoulder. There's good Fred and bad Fred warring over Fred's mind. Uh, We've seen these things uh, for years, and we know what it's like to have that type of a situation happening. Last week, uh, as we were studying through Romans chapter 7, We thought through some elements of our inner conflict. From a negative standpoint, this passage teaches that I am carnal. That I am bereft of good. That I am powerless to do good. That I am hunted or haunted, depending on how you want to spell that and think through that. I am hunted by evil. And I am wretched. From a positive standpoint, this passage teaches us that I want to do what is right. This passage teaches us that I hate doing wrong. That I agree with the good law. That I delight in the law of God. That I want deliverance. And that I serve the law of God. This passage tells us about both of these sides. You might say that this person is a spiritual hot mess. But you know that you experience this very same conflict regularly within you. So you know this is part of the Christian life. Last week where we left off, we started to talk about the fact that I am still impacted by the flesh. I am still impacted by the flesh. There's a residual element. There are remnants of the flesh. Yes, this Bible passage has told us that the old man is dead. That our sin nature is dead. That we're dead to the law. That we're dead to sin. These are facts that... Conveys, but while that death has occurred, severing the law's dominance over us and severing sin's dominance over us, there is this residue, this residual impact that sin has on us. He says in verse 14, I am of the flesh. I am of the flesh. The word there is sarkonos, translated in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3 as human. I am of the human race. I still have my human components. I have my human faculties. And those human faculties war against this new person that I have become. He says that there's this conflict. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, just the next book to your right. A believer has conflict within, within themselves. The Corinthians, called saints in chapter 1 of this book, are spoken of as having conflict among themselves. That conflict that starts inside, spilled out into the church. There was conflict from person to person. And as a result of that conflict, they were carnal, bogged down, and unable to receive what they needed from God's Word. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-3. through three. But I, brothers, could not address you as what is it, what is it, spiritual spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, sarkonos. Instead of uh, pneumatikos, people who are spiritual in nature, I had to address you as those who are sarkonos, those who are fleshly and ruled, overtaken by your flesh. I had to address you as infants in Christ. I had fed you with milk not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a sarkonos, human way? You're just, you're just acting like, like everything is the way things always work. You came to faith in Christ. You repented of your sin. You turned to Christ. God gave you a new nature. He's made you alive. You've been born again. But you're living as if you're still that old person. And because you're living like that old person, you can't receive the meat of the Word. The meat of the Word does you no good. You need to go back to the milk because you need to separate yourself from living in the flesh. The flesh hinders us. Go back to Romans chapter 7. I am of the flesh, he says. I'm sold under sin. What a difficult phrase that is. And as I mentioned last week, just briefly, this has caused a great conflict in the history of interpreting this passage. Sold under sin. Well, how can this be? How can you say that you're sold under sin when the the passages just previously are telling you something different? Take a look back a little bit further in your... Uh, book, the book of Romans, to Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 6 of Romans 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we might know, uh, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 14. For sin will not have dominion over you. We will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Look at verse 18. 18, And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Look at chapter 7 in verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Okay, you're saying that you're dead to sin and that you're dead to the law, that you've been released from sin's domination, that you've been released from from the law's domination, and now in chapter 7, in verse 14, you're saying you're carnal and you're sold under sin. This can't be about a believer. That's what someone's theory would say. Not mine, and I suppose not yours. This passage is depicting for us the fact that while we have died to sin, sin cannot grip us to the point of being our controlling master any longer, the dominance of sin has been removed, and the dominance, the lordship of the law has been removed, we still have the residual influence of both the sin and the law, our sin and the law, and when sin is gripping us, sin comes forth. And when we try to use the law to make us spiritual, it just shows us, our carnality. And so, what he tells us is that the, from the flow of the argument, he's exonerating the law from being sin and being the cause of death. He's telling you and me that sin, my sin, causes death. He's telling us that God's law is holy and just and good, that it is spiritual, that the law is good, the law is spiritual. It is me. It's me. I am carnal. I am carnal. And when I cater to sin, it's because my old nature loves it so. My old nature desires to walk contrary to God. Perhaps you experienced some of this this morning. Perhaps when you were getting out of bed and getting ready, you were thinking, uh, maybe it'd just be easier. Easier to stay home. So many factors. Your factors are different than, than someone else's factors. But uh, easier to stay home. I can watch it on the television or on my computer or on my phone or whatever it is you do if you're not able to come. I can watch it. It's not like I'll be forsaking the Lord. You feel that. Your your flesh would rather be in comfortable clothes, in your own comfortable environment, ordering your day as you want to order your day, rather than do what you know spiritually is most healthful and beneficial to you and others in your pursuit of the Lord. You've felt this battle. In the next several verses, Paul is going to explain to us his fleshliness and what he means that he is sold under sin. Fleshliness does not describe all of me, but just a part. A part of me that must be crucified or put off. What is being described here in these verses that we've read a number of times over the last few weeks in this section is what happens when I or you put the law or our own ability in charge of my spiritual pursuits. Neither the law nor my own flesh can provide ability to succeed spiritually. Which is why we have what the Bible says in verse 13 of chapter 6. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members as uh, as instruments, members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but what? Under grace, you have a Lord. It's God Himself. God is our Lord. He issues forth grace, and that grace comes in the person of the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 7 and verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which formerly held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. As we navigate through this text this morning, I want to give you five words, five words for this spiritual battle that we are engaged in. First of all, conflict that comes in verses 14 through 17. Inability in verses 18 through 20. Hunted. Hunted in verses 21 through 23. Wretched in verse 24. But delivered. Delivered in verse 25. This will navigate us through these passages. We'll try to move somewhat quickly. First of all, conflict. Conflict. We experience inner conflict. Do you? Last week, I tried to paint this in in a way. Do you feel that inner conflict? And what I say to you is, good. You should. You must. If you do not, it means you are not redeemed. If you feel no conflict within you, it means you do not have the spiritual nature. It means that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. That you are a child of wrath, fit for destruction, Ephesians chapter 2. This is your natural condition. The reason you feel a conflict going on within you is because God has put to death that old person and given you a new nature, but that old person wants to crawl out of the grave and wants to dominate you. There's a new nature. We see this new nature. We see this conflict in the fact that we hate violating God's law. That is not true of an unbeliever. An unbeliever does not hate violating God's law. They might hate violating some standard, but they don't hate violating God's law. Look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want. The word there in the Greek is fellow. It's, it's my wish, my desire, my intention. I don't do what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I, what does it say? Hate. That, that word hatred, it, it's, I, this is, I despise that. That, that, is, that is not the direction I want to go in. Instead of doing what I want to do, I do what I don't want to do. I despise this thing. This is a demonstration of that conflict because God has given us a new nature. We Hate violating the law of God. This was also true of David. Now David, you'll remember, sweet psalmist of Israel, great king, uh, he issued in a, a, um, a setting to where when Solomon took over, they had many years of peace because of the, of the, the work that God had done through David because God was bringing his people peace. Peace. But you'll remember that David, one of the times that he, the kings go forth to war, he stayed home and he saw Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop. And he had a, a desire, lust, took hold of this sweet psalmist of Israel, this man after God's own heart. And instead of doing what was right, he did what was vile in God's sight, violating the law. He did that which, we, which he hated. Maybe not during those moments he didn't hate it. But the hatred came. And he probably tried to hide it in himself. Of course, we know he had Uriah the Hittite uh, killed. Uriah killed so that he could cover up his tracks. He tried to squelch this terrible guilt he felt. But Psalm 32, Psalm 38, and Psalm 51 let us know you you can't push that guilt off forever. It'll ravage you in here. And sometimes it can even ravage you to the point that your whole body hurts. It can go from physical, uh, from spiritual to emotional to physical torment. He's very clear on this. Nathan comes to him and tells him about his sin. God knows. You know. You're the man. You remember this. And then we have Psalm 51, this glorious psalm of confession. Listen to these words. For I know my transgressions and my sin is... What does it say? Ever before me. What does that mean? Well, I try to turn this way and I try to forget. But you know what? There it is. Oh, I'll turn to the left. There it is. Oh, I'll turn to the... No, there it is. Right, left, backwards, turn around. Upside down. Hop up. Squat down. Everywhere I look, there it is. Why? I hate violating... The law of God. It is against who I am. God has made me alive to Him. And I want to please Him. And when I sin, my sin is ever before me. He goes on, He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Of course, what we know, that godly sorrow that comes, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that godly sorrow leads us to what? Repentance. And you'll remember that in the midst of David's confession, he says, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. It had been taken, but you know it can be restored. It's restored in the repentance, the confession of our sin. There's this inner conflict going on. And we do what we hate. But that hatred, when we realize that we violated the law of God, is to lead us to repentance. This is describing the conflict that you face, that I face daily. We hate violating God's law. Secondly, in that concept, we, uh, we agree with God's law. Look at verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. What, what do you mean? Well, the reason that you don't want to do that other thing is because you know that what God said is right. Or else you wouldn't say you wouldn't not want to do it. The reason that you have come to the place of saying, I don't want to go in that direction. I hate that thing. I don't want to do that, is because you've seen what God has laid out for you as right and the right pathway. So you agree with the law of God that it is good. That's why you can tell the difference between the wrong way and the right way. Well, the psalmist also deals with this. In Psalm 119, verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Psalm 119, verse 24. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. They they, they say, hey, this is right. This is right. Psalm 40 is a messianic psalm. And so it talks about the Lord Jesus and and it's quoted actually in the book of Hebrews about Jesus saying, "I, I have come to do your will. But just because it's a a messianic psalm doesn't mean it doesn't have root in the historical setting. And David was the author. And David was the, the writer. David was the speaker. And David meant these words as well. Listen to what it says in Psalm 40 in verse 8. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. David desired to do what was right. Even though you can see evidence of him doing what was wrong. And you know... Every single day, if you'll just admit it, and if I'll just admit it, I do the same thing. It may be different uh, types of sin, different, if in, in your mind, levels of sin. Violation of the law is what? Violation of the law. If you are guilty of one point, guess what? Guilty of it all. In the eyes of the Lord, in a sense, one sin is is equal to the other sin. We have this pecking order that we go through. The reality is, sin is a violation of the law of God. And when I sin, I'm charged as guilty. Thankfully, there's more to the story than that. We are still influenced by the remnants of our human nature. Verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Well, that's an interesting passage. And he repeats it essentially in verse 20. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. The fact that I hate violating God's good law reveals that this sinful disposition belongs to the old me My old life. And not the new me. My new life. The old life or the old man is what we are seeking to put an end to. Which is why in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, we went there last week, we're not going to recover those steps. we're, We're told to put to death these things. Put off the old. Put on the new. It's not as if Paul is saying this is someone else and we can blame the old man and ease our consciences. We're not talking about the incredible Hulk and Bruce Banner who refers to the Hulk as the other guy. Oh, 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 uh, I... I did this thing to myself and the other guy came out. Like he's distinguishing himself between these two beings. That's not really what Paul's doing. He's not saying, well, when I sin, it's really not my fault. It's the sin that does it. What he's letting us know is that old disposition is is what's residual of the old life and that's not who I really am. Who I really am is the one that's prepared for the New life. He's not distancing himself from responsibility. What we understand is that our true identity, what is most important about us, is that which will last. It's the new creation that we have been made to be. Thomas Schreiner made this statement and it leads us into our next point. Paul doesn't deny responsibility but confesses impotence. He doesn't deny responsibility but confesses impotence. that leads us to our next word, inability. Inability. Our natural resources do not enable obedience. Look at verses 18 through 20. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Our human nature provides no ability for true righteousness. Our human nature provides no ability for true righteousness. We can do the fake righteousness. Remember Isaiah, all my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Or in Paul's testimony, oh, you want to compare Uh, resumes. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews, etc. etc. I I was circumcised on this day. I was a a, a Pharisee. uh, Above all uh, my my peers essentially I was considered by the law in, in the eyes of man blameless. But all these things I have counted as what? Dung. Because they don't measure up. Not true righteousness. He needed to gain Christ. That's where true righteousness comes from. True Holiness comes from. There is nothing good in our flesh. Verse 18. Nothing good. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. What an important statement. Paul has already covered this reality in chapters 1-3. through He systematically went through every variety of person to let them know that they are Guilty that they stand accountable before God. No more so than in chapter 3 and verse 9, where he says, None is righteous, no, not one. You could contend in response to that, which I don't think you would, but a person could contend, well, that's talking about an unredeemed person, right? In Romans chapter 3, he was talking about unredeemed people. But the Bible broadens that reality out to help you and I understand that it's not just unredeemed people that struggle with sin, but redeemed people like me and redeemed people like you. In the book of Ephesians, we made reference to it just a moment ago, briefly, I want, I want to read to you verse 22, it'll be on the screens, and I'm sharing it to you from the New American Standard Bible, and the reason I'm sharing it, it to to you from that version is it really conveys the the tense that is being used here. Listen to what it says. That in reference to your former old manner of life, you are to lay aside the old self, will you read the next four words with me? Which is being corrupted. Lay aside your old self, which is currently being corrupted. Corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Why is that important to you and to me? Listen, you can find Scripture passages and you can align them in such a way that you think, okay, well, um, I, I should never sin again. You can, you can align Scripture passages uh, one after the other. and You can make, get a whole sheet of paper that tells you a believer should get to the point where they don't sin anymore. Now you have to ignore a lot of other passages of Scripture to get to that point. But you can, you can make that argument. But the Bible doesn't leave us comfortable with that conclusion. And it's not like we're saying, oh, oh good, I don't, have to, I don't have to stop sinning. That's not the point. He's saying, lay aside your old self. But know this about your old self. Your old self, the one that's dead, is growing corrupt. It's, it's growing. It's just growing in the wrong direction. It gets worse and worse, not better and better. Now, you as an individual, as you yield yourself to God, as you yield yourself to God the Spirit, and as you yield yourself to God's Word, God is working in our new being. He's working in our new spiritual nature. He's causing us to have a wider, deeper, larger capacity. And in that larger, wider, deeper capacity, when we are yielded to God's Spirit, and the God's Spirit is at working, He brings to mind those truths of the word that we've learned. And God helps us to live a different way. But Paul is telling us, both in Romans chapter 7 as well as in Ephesians chapter 4, that if you try to do this of your own resources, you're using a corrupted and corrupting source. You will make no no progress because the, spirit, the human nature, our human nature, has no capacity for true righteousness. John MacArthur made this statement, and of course I agree because that's why I'm sharing it with you. In himself, that is, in his remaining fleshly being, a Christian is not more or no more holy or sinless than he was before salvation. No more holy, or sinless than he was before salvation. We have no spiritual capacity within our flesh. Look at the end of verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Wow. It's almost like he's really trying to bum us out. I have a desire to do what's right. I agree with the law that is good. I hate violating the law of God. In myself, I'm, I'm, I don't have any, any good resources in myself, my flesh. I want to do what's right, but I've got nothing. I have no ability. The will is present. The doing is not. The word ability is the Greek term kat ergadzomai. Irgo, irgomai is the work, working, energy, Um, endeavor, kata, meaning through. I don't have the ability to work it through. I don't have the ability to work it out. I have a desire to do what's right, but I can't work it out. Oh, well, this is a real problem because the Bible tells me in Philippians chapter uh, 2 and verse 12 to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah, but it follows it up. It doesn't stop there. It's just because God is working in you both to will and to do. God is working in you both to will, to want to, and to actually bring it, flesh it out to do of His good will. It's so good to know more than one passage of Scripture. My friends, this is a call to you and to me. you got to be in the Word. You've got to be reading and reading and reading. Studying and studying and reading and meditating on the Word. Because if you get caught up on one verse of Scripture without an understanding of what's around it and in other passages, you'll end up really living a defeated life. But God is not leaving us defeated. Oh, this sounds so hopeless. I I have a desire to do what's right, but I can't work it out. This sounds terrible. Doesn't it? You feel this terror within you sometimes. To where it's like, man, I just keep going in the same direction. Why? Why don't I make the progress that I should make? It gets frustrating. Paul says, I I know I, I, I feel your pain. I know what it's like. Whenever you try to do spiritual things without God's Spirit controlling you, you will always feel like a miserable wretch. Or you'll feel like a super spirit, spiritual person. It's another problem altogether. In me, that is in my human nature, I don't have what it takes to work out the doing of that which is good. Reynolds Showers made this statement. He said, if the Christian is to do what God says is right, two things must be true of him. He must be willing to do it, and he must have the power to do it. Living a righteous life is more than a matter of the will. To have the will without power leaves the believer frustrated and unable to accomplish his purposes. So again, this really sounds bad. But it is all part of God's Gospel message. God's Gospel message starts with, I can't. It follows it up with, Jesus did. If you stop there, you are incomplete. Incomplete. It follows it up. The Gospel does. He can do this in you. I can't. Jesus did. And He can perform this in you. The Gospel saves us from our sin. From its penalty. It saves us from its power. The progressive, uh, disintegrating of the lordship of sin happens in the person's life that yields himself to the Lord Jesus. Yields himself to the Master. Yields himself to the Spirit of God. And God takes that grip of sin and the lordship of sin. And sin can no longer master us. That doesn't mean we don't feel its effects. It doesn't mean that it doesn't rear rear its ugly head and try to pull at us. I can't, our Savior has, and He can empower me to do His will. Our human nature is always in opposition to God's rule. Our human nature is always in opposition to God's rule. I I hope that you'll believe this. Verses 19 and 20, look what he says. For I do not do the good I want, But the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Last week we looked at Galatians 5. In fact, why don't we do there? Let's take a look at Galatians 5 just briefly. We're going to come right back to Romans. And we saw this inner turmoil, this conflict, my flesh warring, my flesh fighting, my flesh going in a different direction. So God's Spirit is directing me in this direction. And it's in accordance with God's Word, it's in accordance with God's way. This is what the Spirit does. He directs us in accordance with what we've learned in God's Word, and it's in accordance with what God has revealed. That's good. One direction. And yet, the flesh says, no, no, this way. I'm going this way, Here's reason one, two, three, four, five. You want to keep going? Six, seven. You want to keep going? Eight, nine. I've got it all figured out. Number 10. Here's reason number 11. I'll keep going. Fighting in opposition to God's will and God's way as revealed in God's word. In Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17, God's word says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are what? Against, contrary. To the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are what? Against the flesh. For these are what? Opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's opposition. There's conflict. Our flesh has designs. Your flesh, Christian. My flesh, Christian. Has designs against us. Listen to what 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11 says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of what? The flesh which wage war against your soul. Paul says it in Romans 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to do what? To fulfill or gratify its desires. You see that opposition? Our human nature always resides in opposition to God. Our nature doesn't because we've been made new. But that residual part of us that we spent so many years flexing and working out and building our muscles, it still tries to control us. It never, never yields. Our new nature, that which we've been made in Christ, Has a desire for the things of the Lord. This is what he's letting us know. Head back to Romans chapter 7, and we want to talk about our next word in this battle, this battle that rages on. The word is hunted. Hunted. Our intentions of doing good are battled by our human nature. Our intentions of doing good are battled by our human nature. Verses 21-23 through So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He interestingly starts this section in verse 21 off with the statement, I find it to be a law. He's not saying this is one of the laws of God. He's not saying this is the Mosaic law. He's saying this is a principle. It's like a mathematic axiom. This is always true. It's always true. In geometry you have these axioms and then you have corollaries and blah, 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 blah. The axioms, these these statements that are always true that guide you through the process of understanding what geometry is all about. These are statements of fact, principles of reality. They're unalterable. Well, I find it to be an unalterable reality that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That's what he's telling us. This is a law. You want to do right, but you're being dogged by evil. Your good intention, because you are a new creation in Christ, will be manipulated by your flesh. Your flesh will want to twist the good thing toward its own agenda. Or your flesh may convince you that that good thing that you are intending to do is not good at all. That will cost too much. That will cost too much. Your flesh will tell you, it will cost too much. Oh, Jesus had a few things to say about the cost. If you don't think he's worth it, you don't know him. My friend, if you don't think that worshiping God with the people of God is worth it, you have real problems this is good your flesh tells you there are other ways oh those people hurt me oh those people are all hypocrites blah 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 use every excuse the scriptures are plain god has called his people to gather together to worship him it might look different from one assembly to the next, and your decision about what assembly to go to is completely up to you, between you and the Lord. But worshiping the Lord is not an option. Worshiping the Lord in harmony, in community, with other people is not an option. Your flesh will tell you it is, God will tell you it's not. Oh, this applies to so many areas of life. The flesh dogs us. It wants us to go in a different direction. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Oh, you have to give up too much. Really? Remember the words of Paul in Romans chapter 15 that Jesus pleased not himself, but instead the reproaches that should have fallen on me fell on him? Oh, that's the Christian way to be able to bear. The cost. Say the cost is worth it. Look at verses 22 and 23 again. He says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So I delight, I delight, you delight in God's will, but while I delight in God's will, I am engaged in a battle with my flesh. My flesh wants me to be held captive to the law of sin. My flesh wants me to be held captive to the law of sin. You've got to do this. This is the only way. It essentially is like saying that my flesh wants to take my new spiritual nature hostage, it wants to to rule over me. And that's not needed, that's not necessary. We move to our final word excuse me, not our final, our fourth out of five, wretched, wretched. We are wearied and infected by our human nature. We are wearied and infected by our human nature. Verse 24, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. This is his response to this constant battle. You ever feel that way? Maybe you say, oy vey. Or, oh man, or what in the world? I don't know what your expression is. But like, you, you are wearied by the battle. You're wearied by the fact that your flesh is running contrary to the ways of God. That it fights you tooth and nail for every good thing. Oh man. The word can mean miserable. Oh wretched man that I am. Or it can mean afflicted. What is the misery? What is the misery? There is a body of death that's holding me back from being everything I want to be. I want to worship God 24-7. I want to obey every one of His laws. I want to demonstrate His fruit in my life all the time. This is what I want. Do you not have that desire? I have this desire. I want to do the will of God. And yet, I have something holding me back from getting this accomplished. And what the author of Hebrews would say, lay aside every weight. There's a body of death holding me back. How can I ascend to these heights while being weighed down with this dead weight that's pulling me back? Lay aside every weight. Possibly... Possibly this is an allusion to a practice of chaining the victim of a murderer to the murderer. Oh, you killed someone. Well, that dead body is going to be chained to you. And what's going to happen is that their decaying body is going to decay your body. And it's going to infect you. And it will eventually take your life. That could be an allusion to that in this passage. That death you created will be the death of you. And so, if that's the idea, he's essentially saying, get this thing off of me! Please! Help me! And then he says, very important, who who will deliver me? I can't deliver me. My flesh can't deliver me. The law can't deliver me. My sin can't deliver me. That body won't deliver me. Who will deliver me? And he gives us that glorious answer in verse 25. There is deliverance. In verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is rescue. This is what Paul has been teaching about since the beginning of the book of Romans. He's been leading us to this point to understand that there's rescue. This is why he said, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith To faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Who will deliver me? Thanks be to God. God will do it. And how will He do it? He'll do it through Jesus Christ our Lord. A similar note is struck at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us what? The victory! Through our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) We have this, this flesh jogging us, right? We feel it. We, we feel this conflict. My, I want to do what's right, but I do what's wrong. I hate doing what's wrong, but I still do it. What's going on? I feel, I feel betrayed by all my resources. I can't do it. I want to go this way. I go that way, and I can't stand it anymore. What do I do? God. God has done it. God has done it. He's delivered us. Sin is not our master anymore. The consequence of my sin has been borne by another. The weight of that sin has been removed. But I have this battle. Charles Hodge writes, the great blessing of deliverance for which he gives thanks is received through the Lord Jesus Christ. He does for us what neither the law nor our own powers could affect. The flesh that once enslaved us to sin and still dogs us with its remnants has been declared dead and is being overtaken by God's grace through the Spirit. That's what we're going to see in chapter 8. This same flesh will one day be finished off. That's a fact. Believer, it's a fact. One day, your flesh will be finished off. Flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. That's why he's going to make this mortal put on immortality and this corruptible put on incorruption and thus shall be brought to pass the saying, Death, where is your stay? Oh, grave. Where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, but the strength of sin is the law. I'm dead to that too. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory is certain. You know why? Because the battle is the Lord's. The battle rages on, but we know That we have been declared righteous. That God is enabling righteousness in this life today. Enabling righteousness in this life. And we will be made entirely righteous on the last day. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, You are good. Your plan is good. We do find ourselves frustrated. This frustration comes when we are not submitted to you and we try to do the right thing with our own resources and our our resources don't, don't cater to you, don't love you, don't worship you. We find this to be frustrating in those moments and yet we find such joy in knowing that you have already delivered us from that weightiness, that that dead old man will one day be forever removed from us and we will be set free completely and entirely in your presence, rejoicing in your goodness and demonstrating your goodness. Father, help us while we await that coming day That we would allow your spirit and your word to navigate us through, to encourage us, to enlighten us, to empower us to do what is right, to do what demonstrates your character. And we know, Father, that you do this and you've left us here to battle through this, that we might be a light to those who reside in darkness. Father, we pray that our light would so shine before men that they would see our good works and glorify you, our Father. You are in heaven. We want people to turn to you, to know that you can forgive sinners like us and sinners like them. Father, use us for your glory. Help us as we sing that we would please you in our singing. In Jesus' name, amen.